Amen. May it be so that we see the spreading of the gospel as is referred to in that hymn. Turn you to First Thessalonians this morning in chapter one. First Thessalonians chapter one. Again, we do welcome you here today and trust you will continue to be encouraged as we worship the Lord. Thank you to those who prayed for us in relation to Friday. We very much appreciate it, your prayers, and trust the Lord will make it lastingly helpful. You're asked to send two sermon titles for the president to give his preference, and so dealing with fasting was his certainly his desire for me to deal with that in light of the two subjects that I give, so trust the Lord will use it. certainly was helpful for myself in preparation to be reminded of these things. Sometimes you're in the midst of an impossible scenario, and you forget what the Lord has said that we looked at in Mark 9. There are certain impossible scenarios, and here's what you do. You pray, you fast, you give particular time aside to seek me and nothing will be impossible. And we forget that. I think we lose sight of it. We can read it and we know it's there, but when it comes to the impossible circumstances, the times where it seems as if my heart's desire cannot be fulfilled here, then we forget. So I trust it was helpful to many. It certainly seemed to be that way. Some who have been a long time Christian uh, Christians have said to me they've never heard a sermon on the subject of fasting. So I trust it was helpful to young and to not so young um, that we may continue to grow all the days of our lives and glorify the Lord. It certainly is a message for this congregation as well. There are times where things are seemingly impossible. And what are we to do? We can sit down and get all pragmatic about things or we can seek the Lord. May we learn to do the latter. First Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. And we will read from verse 5 through to the end of the chapter. This is a very challenging and encouraging opening chapter to this letter. And as we finish it, God willing, today, it will continue to help us, I think, in what the Lord has for us and what we may rejoice in. Let's look from verse 5. Let's read the Word of God. Let's hear it with profit. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word, and may we receive it knowing that it has been an immense privilege for us to even hear the very Word of God today. Let's pray just for a moment then. Cry to God to open our hearts to rightly receive His Word. Lord, give us the grace to receive the Word with profit, the blessing of having ears unstopped and hearts that are soft. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Spirit of the living God, give ears to hear, to young and to old. 
to believer and to unbeliever. May today be a profitable day in the Word of God. May the power of the Spirit rest upon all that is true and right and glorifying to Thee. And may it please Thee to change us and for those without Christ to save them. Fill this preacher then with wisdom, with the love of Christ and the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. What does it take to be um, an exemplary church? That was a question that was going through my mind as I was preparing for the service this Lord's Day, reading over again the first chapter of this epistle. These believers that had received the Word of God in much affliction, in tremendous difficulty, had become examples. We saw that briefly at last Lord's Day, where we are told in verse 7 that they became examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And just to note there that generally God's people are examples to others of God's people. The world doesn't see the Christian as an example. There's a certain application there, but Paul is saying here that specifically the example of the believers in this church were toward other believers in these regions of Macedonia and Achaia. This is Paul's first epistle. There probably aren't that many churches in those regions, relatively speaking, to what there would be in years later. But regardless, the churches that were already there were looking to this church, to these believers, and were being instructed in how to live the Christian life. And of course, they had gotten their example from others. We are told in verse 5, "...you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake." You, you can remember the kind of characters we were in your midst. And we lived in a certain fashion. We looked at that last week. I'll not rehash all of that. But verse 6 shows how they embraced it. Instead of rebelling against it, or instead of trying to make it easier for them, or to say, well, that's how Paul lived, and that's how Silas lived, and Timothy, or the rest of them, that's how they lived. They adopted the same philosophy. They didn't want to make it easier for themselves. We are told, "...he became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost." Now certainly there's application there with regard to the fact that they received the word and became followers of them in, in such a fashion that they looked like them in how they lived. But specifically it is in this area that with affliction they continued on. They were not discouraged are sidetracked. The Word of God that they received did not become unprofitable. If you read again the, the parable of the sower and how the Lord teaches us there that the, the seed that is sent out finds different grounds. And sometimes it's received initially with joy, but when the trials, the difficulties, the persecutions, temptations and all arise, then there's no lasting profit in the life. That was not the case here. Even though they were promised the forgiveness of their sins, and they were told what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for them. If they would just receive Him, believe in Him, and live for Him, then they would be assured of eternal life. They embraced that, but when the going got tough, they continued on. It did not put them off. In other words, faith was sufficiently rooted within their life that they could see that all the trials of this life were it was worth it to endure and to suffer in order to gain the promise of the life to come. The Lord worked such a work in their lives they could see, they grasped that we don't just live for the here and now. It's not about making life as easy as possible for this stage of living. But there's another life to come. We're entering into eternity. And they grasped that and realized, well, if the affliction comes, it worketh for us far more precious than the eternal and exceeding weight of glory, as it were. So they became examples. An exemplary church. We are told they became examples. That word in verse 7 really has the idea of being a model. It's the only text in the New Testament here in chapter 1, verse 7 of this letter where it is used with application to an entire congregation. 
used in, in the group sense. And so it is saying of the entire church they were exemplary. One commentator says that this word, it was used metaphorically in ethical teaching as the model of conduct to which a person should or should not conform. And so that's what they became, the model. The model church in the region. The model church that other churches would look to and say, here is how the Lord would have us to live. What a testimony. I wonder, do we have any ambition to have the same thing said of us? Not to brag about it. Not in order for us to receive any glory from man. But that the Lord was honored in using the example of the believers in this church to help other believers. To help them positively live the Christian life. Sometimes we read things and we wonder about the motive. Well, we can't read the motive. I think of reading Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions and him wrestling over the fact that there is some believer in this world, some believer that is more like Christ than any other believer. And he pledged by the grace of God to be that man. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's, that's ambition. That's spiritual ambition. And providing it is not to, again, draw attention to ourselves for all the wrong reasons, but in order for us to be, again, examples and encouragement to other believers to help them, then is the motive not pure and right? Is this not what the Lord would have us to be and to do? I think it is. And so this church greatly challenged me just reading what Paul was able to say about them. And we wonder then, well, what would the Lord say about us? Have we work to do? <laughs> Is there progress to be made? Has there been a stepping back from perhaps a time where we were more exemplary? And now we need to regain lost ground and continue on forward for His glory. Well, the Lord perhaps only is able to judge these matters. And certainly He alone can judge them infallibly. But I want us to consider here this morning in the remaining verses of this chapter an example worth following. An example worth following. There's just two main points here. The example worth following, first in terms of duty, that is what they did, and then in terms of doctrine, the reason why they did it. So let us consider first in verse 8, in terms of duty, how they were an example. We're told in verse 8, look at it there, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. What's he saying? Well, let's break it down and look at some important terms here. He says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. That term there, sounded out, has the idea of being within earshot of a loud noise. Hearing something, perhaps even from a distance, that is very loud. And you know even from the distance that if you were very near it, that would be very loud. It's reaching far. It has the imagery of being like a clap of thunder the cry of a multitude, or the blast of a trumpet. And thus it has the idea of volume and it spreading out. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. It wasn't hedged in. It wasn't concentrated in one area. As they spread and took the gospel, it was like a trumpet blast to all that were around. It was the thunderings of God through His people spreading the gospel far and wide. And what were they spreading? Well, we're told the word of the Lord. The gospel. We are told in Acts chapter 8, verse 25, this term is used there. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So it's just kind of synonymous with the idea of the gospel, the word of the Lord. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. The word that God had given. The word that God has given to them and has given to us to declare, to declare His message to men and women. It's not talking about kind of finer points of theology that don't make any difference in the lives of people. That the heart of the message is something that makes a difference. I mean, if we have ambitions to sound out the word of the Lord in terms of little points of doctrine, 
that we can argue over, but it doesn't really make a difference in lives, that's not the focus of this church. This church's primary desire, their longing was to trumpet out the message that changes lives and changes homes. Their focus, therefore, was on Christ, His person, His work, the love of God for sinners, the message toward those that are lost, the embrace of God Almighty toward all nations that having seen the Messiah live and die for men and rise again from the dead, all may know that whosoever may thirst, or whosoever thirsts, may come. This is what they sounded out. They got it out there into the world. And we're told not only in Macedonia and Achaia, of course they were in samples to those that were in those regions, but the word went further than that. But also in every place, your faith to God were to spread abroad. This is not talking here in this verse about the reputation merely. That's not what was sounded out. They were, they were in samples. They were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. But in verse 8, it's not dealing with them sounding out the reputation. <laughs> they weren't going around and saying, look how great we are. That wasn't what they took. It turns then from reputation to the message that they preached. And so that, that is what went beyond Macedonia and Achaia into every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. Everywhere you've went, everywhere you have gone. It's talking therefore about their efforts in spreading the gospel. And so there were places beyond these regions where their evangelism was taking a foothold. And the result, Paul says, so that we need not to speak anything. Again, this is not talking about the reputation. What he's saying here is that we don't have to share anything about the gospel in these places where you've already gone. You've gone to places before I've got there. You, you, you've reached into areas where really I don't need to go in a certain sense. You've gone there and I don't need to therefore bring the gospel there. Paul's desire was to preach and lay a foundation where no one else had been. And this church, therefore, was engaging in evangelistic effort that was going into regions that Paul had not been in, and therefore he did not have to go there himself. And we don't need to speak anything. We don't need to go there and bring the gospel for the first time. You've already gone there. Paul, therefore, is so encouraged by what they have done. And he had been, in some way, boasting about the reputation he tells us that in the second letter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He, he, has, he has been talking about them, sharing what they have done, their endurance, and so on. We read in verse 3 of chapter 1 of that second epistle to them, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. What a testimony! so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for all that you are doing and enduring. And so he did speak about them. Their reputation was shared by Paul. But going back to this first chapter of the first epistle, he's not talking about them going with their reputation. He's talking about them going with the gospel. Them going to spread the Word of God. And what, what an impact that had. And so this, is, this was their duty. This is, this is what they did. And this is an example to us. You know, I, I thought about... You bring the verses that are give us an idea of life in the church there. I thought, what an example for us too. Three things that I think we, we need to realize are fundamental in being exemplary for others. Things that don't change, that regardless of where we are or what we're facing in our generation, three things that must be able to be said about the church that desires to be an example for others. First, preach the truth enthusiastically. They were doing that. They were preaching the truth enthusiastically. They were going out as far as they could go carrying the truth. They were going there with heart, with zeal, with passion, with love. They were not holding back. They weren't at ease in Zion. They weren't considering their duty done if they merely stayed within their city and ministered to their neighbors. There was a broader vision. 
They were discipling other young people, other young men, raising them up, sending them forward, asking God to, to prepare them to disciple others and help them to disciple others so that they can go far and wide. And this is what happened. God moved quickly and powerfully in order for it to be said that the word of the Lord is being sounded, it's being trumpeted. It's being trumpeted. What a, what a thing. The truth must be preached enthusiastically. Congregations that want to be examples to others, that must be something that they can be clearly identified. That they're not just preaching in order to, you know, they, they come together, a little flock gathering like this on a Sunday morning, and I get up and I bring some nice thoughts for you to consider, some truths for you to ponder over, and maybe some application for you to wrestle with. And then nothing happens. Nothing, there's no product really. That can't be said. That, that, that is merely satisfying some kind of desire to tick off certain religious duty and desire. And, and not seeing the big picture that the church that wants to be exemplary to others, to be a mother to others, has to lead in this, preaching the truth with enthusiasm far and wide as God gives opportunity. We need to have a heart for this. But not only preaching the truth enthusiastically, they love others practically. I'm not going to go to it, but there are passages that show that already they were showing their love to others. Uh, this city, Thessalonica, was, was, was a place that many would come to in terms of business. They would pass through. And if you read the, cha the, the chapter, the, the letter carefully, you will find that they were helping. That there was a testimony in the church there that they were helping others they were being hospitable. They were being practical. They were sending money. They were giving themselves to love others, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. Their, their, their lives were very, very evidently taking on the gospel, and it was conforming their lives in such a way that they looked at others and saw their responsibility in the lives of other people. Very important thing. You can have... You can be so doctrinally precise, but if people do not, if, if they come into contact with you and they do not sense any practical love shown to others, you can talk and preach until you're blue in the face. They will not believe that you really believe what you say you believe. There has to be the practical outworking of the truth in love. Real love. Now you can say, and I can say, I love all y'all. <laughs> I can say that. And you can say it. But we all know what has to be seen. Felt through the practical outworking of seeing need, rising to the challenge that providence brings our way. I see that brother in need. There he is. If I'm not moved toward him to help, can I say I'm a Christian? It's a challenge of the Word of God. They also, therefore, seek to win the lost energetically. There's an outworking, yes, preaching the truth enthusiastically, loving others practically, but they seek to win the lost energetically. And again, that this was so clear. The truth is there. We're going to see it in our next point in just a moment. But they were preaching it with heart and they were loving practically and there's just this driving energy that was moving them into the world. It was almost as if the Lord has said, I want you to reach the world for Christ. And regardless of what Paul, what God was doing with Paul and with Silas and the rest of them, regardless of where they were going, they saw this sense of duty to, to make the world know that God loves sinners. Make the world know there's a message of hope. Make the world know that no one is beyond the experience of peace if they only have the Prince of Peace in their hearts. And they, they, they were moved. They were so moved to get this out. So they, they, they clearly then were exemplary in terms of duty. What they did, verse 8 makes that plain. But they also were exemplary in terms of doctrine. Why did they do it? 
what, what moved them to do it? And when we come to verses 9 and 10, we, we see the doctrines that were at the heart of what they were bringing to the world. First, note with me the doctrine of Christian repentance. Verse 9, we read, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, what he's saying here at the beginning, they themselves, that is those places where you've gone, those places where you've had an impact, they're able to tell me, show of us, they're showing us, Paul and my, my companions, the manner of entering in we had onto you. In other words, I'm going to places where you've already been, and they're telling me about how you received the gospel when we went to you. That's what he's saying. In other words, the, the story of God's love poured out upon the city of Thessalonica, that story that we read in Acts chapter 17 was going ahead of Paul into areas, and he would arrive there, and they were hearing, oh, oh, we've heard. We've heard. They came, and they told us of how God's power came upon Thessalonica, and you brought the gospel to them, and then some of them have come to us and shared the gospel. It's gone before. And what was the story? What were they being told? How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They were testifying. They were testifying. They were going into cities and saying, here's what the Lord has done for me. Now, child of God, you have at least that, if you have nothing else, to share with the world. That you can go into places, wherever you're employed, or wherever the providence of God has you right now, and you can sit people down or stand next to them and come alongside them and say, here is why I'm a Christian. Here is what God has done for me and go back and tell the story well you weren't in Thessalonica and perhaps you weren't giving yourself to physical idols of that form but they were and you were giving yourself to something else you have a story you have a message you have your own experience of God's redeeming love manifest in your life and you can talk about it and you should be skilled in talking about it Every last believer here, every last one of you, of any age and any ability to speak, <laughs> should be able at a moment's notice to stand up and say, here's how I came to know Christ. Here is what the Lord has done for me. At a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, you should be able to stand up and say, here's what the Lord has done. If you can't do that, if I was to <laughs> ask you, and you, th I would, you would be petrified not by merely having to share it to someone, but you're petrified because you don't know what you would say. Then there's a problem. I mean, if you don't know your story, who does? I mean, you have to know what the Lord has done in your life. And it should be coming forth all the time, even as you pray, as you worship, as you sing hymns of testimony. Surely I'm not the only one singing hymns of testimony, thinking about how those experiences expressed in poetry that are sung to the Lord, how they apply in my own experience. Now I see the cleansing wave, the fountain deep and wide. I'm thinking of the time, the moment, the hour when God helped me to see by His Spirit. Are, are we so detached? No, no. The, the, our hearts should know what God has done. And they were going into places saying how they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is what Paul did. He went in and challenged the idols of the day. He didn't go in and miss the mark. He would identify where the hearts of the people are and he would nail them. He would dismantle them. He would seek to destroy them. And he would show that the only hope for men is in the gospel. We are told when he went to Lystra, in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, the response is, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are 
therein. Paul went in to dismantle the idolatry. To help men give up trusting in the visible and to trust in the invisible God. And this practice of worshipping idols is, is something that you see the folly of in Isaiah chapter 44. Flip over there just for a moment. Go to Isaiah 44. You see the madness of, of coming before idols. And here in the, in the midst of Isaiah's prophecy, this issue is addressed. People, and, and they do it today. They, they, they raise up their little idols, their little statues, they bow before them, they pray. Of course, many today, they, they might not have the kind of traditional form of idols that we would think of in these terms, but they have, always have other idols. They always do. I mean, you think of how people worship celebrities. You think of what they're doing. It's like they lose sight of the fact that this is a flesh and blood person and that they are wretched sinners. There's nothing inspiring, I mean truly inspiring, about mere men. If, if we find ourselves more inspired by sinners than by Jesus Christ, we have a worship problem. We need to be seeing all the time that those things that are put before us that we are drawn out and we, you see, it just agrees me to see it. To see the way people live today. It's not any different. It's just, the idols have just changed. But what are they? What are they? Look, look with me here. Isaiah 44, verse 8. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Verse 9. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. And their delectable things or desirable things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They see not nor know that they may be ashamed. If you flip, go down to verse 16. It's talking about a man who makes, makes some form of an image out of a material like wood. And so verse 16, he has taken some tree, he has grown a tree, and verse 16 says, He burneth part thereof in the fire, with part thereof he eateth flesh, he uses it as a fire therefore to make his dinner, he roasteth roast and is satisfied, yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down onto it, and worshipeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Verse 21. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for thou art my servant. I have formed thee, thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. What's God saying here? Here's the folly of idolatry. You take your material like wood. With part of that wood, you light a fire. And you eat your dinner. And you keep yourself warm. And you take the residue of that wood. And you start to form a God. And you bow down before it and say, Oh God, deliver me! This thing, that you, you took another part of that and you burned it. And you made your dinner with it. And God is saying, look. The one you're to worship is the one that has done the forming. Remember these, O Jacob, verse 21. For thou art my servant. I have formed thee. Thou art my servant. Come to me. Look to me. Don't consider any other as equivalent. You can't form your God. Your God forms you. And so he says then, draws them out to the Gospel even in light of that. When you realize... That the one you are to worship is the one that has made you. Then realize he has also made provision for you. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions. Is that piece of wood going to save you? Is it going to wash away your sins? Or in today's terms and experiences, is the celebrity going to deliver you from your transgressions? 
Is some politician going to advocate for you before God Almighty? What is going to deliver you in the day of trouble? What have you? If you have not Christ, you have nothing. Absolutely nothing. So, these Thessalonians were rejoicing and telling the story of how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A God that is alive and true. They therefore had turned away from everything else. I like that Paul had that impact. Sometimes missionaries go into places and they preach. And when they leave, the, the gospel that is so-called that has been embraced by the people is tainted by syncretism. That is the addition of their, their old ways. And so they hear this person come in and bring a message of deliverance and the promise of salvation and sins forgiven and they add the message of the gospel to their old ways. In other words, they don't turn from their idols to serve the living and true God. They try to adopt in the living and true God with their idols. But Paul's preaching did not have that effect. Paul's preaching caused them to turn. Turn. Get away. Get away from the vanities. Stop trying to hide under a refuge of lies. Stop trying to give yourself to that which does not help. Turn away from all of that and turn to the living God. And so he demanded of them a complete change. And a complete change is what was witnessed and what they testified to. If you're here today and you want to be saved, it is on God's terms. You cannot adopt Jesus Christ into your wicked ways. You're not going to carry in your heart or with any kind of form of baggage wickedness that is against God. You can't make alliances for things that grieve Him. You can't. You can't say to yourself, well, I'll have Jesus Christ, but I'll continue on a life of a transgressor with my lies and my lusts and I, uh, whatever form of sin you're in. You can't do that. God demands the entirety of your heart and for you to turn. This is repentance. True biblical repentance. And it's a wonderful thing, you know, to turn away from all the old life and all of its sin and all of its ensnarements and turn on to life and drink of the fountain of life freely and have your soul satisfied. Yes, I've tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. They fail over and over again. Try to find satisfaction in something else. We must turn. You must turn if you have not already. Young or old, rich or poor, you must turn from your wickedness to serve the living and true God. And there's tremendous joy in it, as they had known. There's also the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. Verse 10, we are told, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. This is also going out. It was being told not just how they had turned to serve the living and true God, but these people had trusted in the one, Jesus Christ, that was raised from the dead. What a message in a pagan world. That the one you trust in actually has conquered death. The one thing we all fear. The universal fear of all men. What will happen when I die? Where am I going? What will the experience be like? What will happen to me afterwards? A good question for us all. I remember that being the first thought that got me to consider the possibility of the pride of my own heart and that how I needed to think a little more deeply than I had up to that point in my life. What was that thought? I went to church for the first time in my life as far as as an adult, 11 years since I had been at church for any form of a service, and I went there and the, the thought that I went away with was this, what if there is an eternity? What if? What if there is an eternity? And that was what I walked away with. (laughs) Beginning to entertain the very possibility that my assurance that there is just after this nothing. What if I'm wrong? Well, for the Christian, it's nothing to fear. 
the Lord Jesus Christ in going before us and entering into death and rising from the dead. You see the picture of Him there upon the cross. Never, ever, ever has a man had control over his own death like Jesus Christ. You say, well, what about those that take their life? They don't have control. They don't. I'm hearing the very sad story of a lady I had she had a it was like a bed and breakfast that I stayed in when I went to preach in one of our churches in Scotland on occasion. And she she was her home was on a farm and she had this little bed and breakfast on the side. And so you would go there, stay and she would you know, you'd have a place to sleep and you'd have breakfast in the morning and whatever. Lovely lady. And I remember hearing the news by one of the other young men, one of the other young preachers of the tragic news of what had happened to her. I had been with her and spoken to her on a number of occasions. Not once did I realize what she was under or what she was going through. I heard the news how she had taken her husband's shotgun and pointed it at her stomach or at her chest area or whatever. And she pulled the trigger. And her husband came out and found her in one of the farmyard areas in the shed or whatever. Found her and she was she was still conscious, unable to say the words, What have I done? What have I done? She perhaps thought she'd pull that trigger and it'd be gone. She did die. But she hadn't the control over her death that she thought she had. It was a sudden wake-up call. It was too late. The only person who had absolute control over his death was Jesus Christ. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. When he was on that cross, we read, he bowed his head. Gave up the whole ghost. He didn't droop. It didn't droop or fall. He bowed his head. He stepped into death, completely in control of the very moment at which he would depart life. And he steps right out of it again, out of death. Comes to life. I have power to take it again. And so he says, "I am the resurrection and the life." He that believeth in me shall never die. And so Paul goes into this city and goes into other areas and he preaches this message of one who has power over death because he has risen from the dead by an act of his own will. And that brings such hope that no other religion can match. And those that are listening properly, they're thinking, wow, what is this? And they're drawn in. And the Spirit works and they're converted. And therefore they go forward into other regions, into other territories, and they proclaim, read the book of Acts, they proclaim the resurrection of Christ. It's constantly on their lips. The Son of God lived, died, and rose again. So all the fears of men are abolished in that one reality. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If He did that, He can do anything. There's also the doctrine of Christ's representation because we are told that He would, they they were waiting for a son from heaven. This is again the message that they had embraced and they were living out and they were preaching His son from heaven. The son of God from heaven. Now, of course, this is pointing to the idea of Him coming from heaven, but it has enveloped in it the idea that He is already in heaven. They're waiting for Him to come from heaven. But what is He doing in heaven? What is the Son doing in heaven? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So we have one there, and according to the writer of the Hebrews, it gives confidence. Since He is there, we can continue on. More clearly, perhaps, in Hebrews 9.24, we are told Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, 
which are the figures of the true. In other words, he's not like other priests that went into the tabernacle and the temple, but into heaven itself, now to appear, note it, in the presence of God for us. For us. He is in heaven for us. He died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven for us. And this is incorporated into their message. They're telling men and women, God represents us in heaven. The God-man who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The one who knows the infirmities of our flesh, yet He is before God Almighty who made heaven and earth representing us. He has not gone on vacation. He's not away doing something else. He's not ignoring the plights that we face in life. He is in heaven for us. He is representing us now. And so they would rejoice in this fact that the salvation that God has provided for men is not kind of some act that was done once and then he forgets about it, but he continues to support and gird and be with his people, praying for them, representing them, and guaranteeing that their entrance into heaven is assured. Access before God through Christ. What a message. No fear, therefore. No doubt. There's also the doctrine of Christ's return. They wait for His Son from heaven. This is what this people are identified as doing. They're waiting. There's a patience in the sense that He will return one day. And the church is to live in the light of Christ's return. We are to think about it far more often than I think we do. That's why I I constantly say at the Lord's table when we read the passages that it tells us we are to do this till He come. That I add in, even so come, Lord Jesus. A reminder that we are only doing this until He comes. And we should be desiring and looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ patiently anticipating the day when all things will come to an end. The church, as they saw Christ ascend into heaven, they had spoken unto them by the angels in Acts 1 verse 11, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. And it's an encouragement for the people of God, but I'll tell you, it's a frightening thing if you're not saved. Just take a second and turn over to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to read a few verses. Now, we have read some very sobering passages already today. Psalm 7. I trust you heard it. God's judgment against the wicked. The fact that He, will, he is angry with the wicked every day. God is not in the business of playing with sin. He will judge it, and He will judge it severely. He has made provision for sinners. What rebellion there is in the heart of the man or the woman or the boy or the girl that says, not in your terms, Lord, or not in your time. When he says, it is time to seek the Lord. When he said, now is the day of salvation, you continue on in your little rebellious way saying, no, no, I will not. Well, read another sobering passage. Chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians, read from verse 7. And to you who are troubled... Talking to God's people, to you who are troubled, troubled with life, troubled with the difficulties, troubled with the afflictions and the burdens of being a Christian in a world that hates the Lord Jesus, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. Rest with us. What is going to happen to your enemies? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. There's none so loving like the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day where He will return. And those that have mocked it, those that have denied it, those that have doubted it, those that have halted, those that have procrastinated and have not gotten themselves to Christ, they will be punished with everlasting destruction. 
This is why it was time to seek the Lord. This was on the heart of those that preached, that went out from this city. What an example they are. The final doctrine we see here is the doctrine of Christ's redemption. The redemption that He brings to the sinner. He delivered us from the wrath to come, it says at the end of verse 10. Delivered from the wrath to come. The wrath is the wrath of God. The wrath is the wrath we've already read in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The outpouring of the anger of God even through Jesus Christ against sin, against those that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these individuals had been delivered from the wrath to come. Their conscience made them aware they were sinners. They knew they had broken the law of God and they were constantly trying to placate that by the best light that they had to try and reconcile themselves to the God they didn't know. And the apostles come in there and they declare the truth of the gospel. They embrace it. They receive it. It all makes sense to them. And their lives are transformed. And the fear of death and the fear of the consequences of their sin, it's all gone. They have been delivered from the wrath to come. And this, this, this can be your experience here today as well. Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I don't know what you understand about the love of God. But if it is so distorted to imagine that the love of God means that He is going to overlook your sin, even though you've continued on to rebel against the gospel and ignore Jesus Christ and deny the faith, you're greatly mistaken. There is no trifling here. God's wrath will be revealed from heaven. He will punish the unbeliever. He will come in such horror that we can't even begin to express it or understand it. And yet these men, these women, whoever they were that were part of that church in Thessalonica, they carry this message. Let's read the verses again, understanding what we've sought to make clear to you from verse 8 of chapter 1. For from you sounded out, it was trumpeted, it was declared like a clap of thunder in the ears of all around the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. You've gone before, everyone knows, for they themselves, these people that have been reached by you, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. They know what happened. You've told them your testimony, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, is this you? Have you had the experience of conversion? of salvation, of redemption? Have you been brought into Christ? Have your sins been forgiven? Have, has someone come to you and declared unto you the way of life and urged upon you your reception of it that you might possess the knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins? If they have not come to you prior to today, they are coming now. I am declaring to you the way of life. I am bringing to you the same message preached almost 2,000 years ago, declaring unto you that the misery of your sin need not last. Not in life, not in death, not in eternity. That salvation, redemption, peace, forgiveness, joy, contentment, the things that you have sought but you have not found in the world, the things that you have been promised but have failed, Jesus Christ provides he made you. He understands you. He knows your need. And He has provided everything for life and godliness. He knows exactly what you require today. And He has provided it in Himself. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Beloved, this church was inspiring other people. Other believers, not by their depth of theological knowledge, but by how they lived out what they knew. And nothing I have said today is unknown to you. You know these doctrines. You know these truths. You understand them sufficiently. And you're called to spread it abroad. To tell others of the same. To be examples in your enthusiasm of declaring the truth. Your love for souls and the energy in which you proclaim Christ to others, this ought to be our, 
our model, and indeed it is. As a church matures, there's always a danger that it loses the vision for souls, especially. Whatever else may be said about it, it's not trying to win souls. In fact, this pattern in the history of the church is frightening. It really it frightens me. It frightens me to read the repeated pattern of churches maturing and getting to the point where they lose the vision. That pattern is so established, it is so bedded into the history that one wonders if it can at all be reversed or prevented. Now, I believe it can. But there are tremendous dangers to a level of maturity within a congregation. And those dangers begin in the loss of heart for proclaiming these truths outward. There has to be a continual praying and lamenting and desiring that God would inflame our hearts with love for souls. Otherwise, we begin to look inward and we begin to lose what we're here for. Yes, we're here to build up the saints. Yes, we're here to encourage others. But I'll tell you what, take away evangelism. And what are we doing that we will not do in heaven? This is why Jesus understood that he must work the works of him that sent him while it is day. For the night cometh when no man can work. Yes, work. Doing our duty, being examples, going out into the world, telling the gospel, telling them that, that, that all the work we need to do, <laughs> the one thing we don't have to do is work our salvation. But it's provided for us in the Son of God. May God baptize us with fresh zeal. May this example in this church encourage us. May it help us to see that Paul's joy in them was not in them wrestling over the finer points of doctrine. While he was all for doctrine and sought to straighten out churches repeatedly in regards to what they believed, yet his joy in them is how, yes, the truth was there, but how it was being proclaimed and reaching out into the community and into other areas. I trust the Lord will help us to always have the balance. May be pleased to make us exemplary so that souls are saved. And then they themselves are discipled and they're not discipled in head only. But by our example, they see they also must have love for souls. May God give us that blessing. Let's bow together in prayer. As our heads are bowed, I'm thankful that this congregation has been used down through the years to send forth many laborers and has supported many laborers and continues to do so. But there is a famine of laborers. And one of the ways in which we can help it is by being what we want to see in others. If we want to see young men go and preach the gospel, we need to exemplify the going in our locality, in our church. There needs to be a going spirit even within the local body. New believers need to see the effort made to bring the lost in. They need to hear the prayers being offered on Wednesday nights and other occasions where you're lamenting over that unsaved work colleague who will not come to Christ and the fact you're praying for them, that in itself is an encouragement of where the burden should lie and where your efforts are being directed. For if we don't win them today, we are not guaranteed of winning them tomorrow. For none of us know what a day may bring forth. May God give us zeal, give us heart. Lord, we need help in this. I feel it in my own soul. The dryness that can easily set in. Thy word has been an encouragement to my own heart. Thou hast directed us, I believe, even as a congregation, to see the example of this congregation. And such joy that Paul had. Lord, make us to be a church that brings joy to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Please. We can't do it of ourselves. We're weak in the flesh. May the Holy Spirit come. May we begin to burden our hearts with souls. Those that in providence are near us already. And then others with whom we've never met as yet. Bless those that go out today that are trying to win lost souls this very afternoon. May they go forth weeping and return rejoicing, bringing their sheaves with them. Answer prayer and hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.